Over the past few months, of course, we have been talking a lot about the role of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer. We looked at the fruit of the Spirit that's produced in us, seeing how God is at work in His people to make us more like Him, that we would more and more in our lives manifest love and joy and peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. We've also been looking at the gifts of the Holy Spirit that are given to us, that God has so arranged and ordained the body such that many different gifts are given to believers with the goal that the whole church would be built up and strengthened and grow towards maturity as each part does its work. The gifts are given for the benefit, of course, of the whole church. Last week, Pastor Steve looked at the three clusters of spiritual gifts, that there are these kinds of prophetic gifts, the teaching and encouragement and others using words to build up, that there are priestly gifts of serving and mercy, of building up through practical actions and help, and that there are kingly gifts for building up the church, seeing how about leadership, about faith, about wisdom, and how God builds his church through that sort of cluster of gifts. And so I think over the last months as we've been in this series, I've been challenged to consider again, and maybe you all have, the centrality of the Holy Spirit's role in the life of the church. There can be a lot of religious activity in the church that lacks the supernatural power of the Holy Spirit. And I think it's right for us to ask ourselves, in my, in my life, am I actively relying on the Spirit to do more in and through me than I could do in my own power and in my own strength? And what does that look like for us? How do we have a vision to look with faith to see who the Spirit is making us to be and what the Spirit is leading us to do? This morning, I want us to get a glimpse of that vision by looking at Acts chapter 2. We've been talking, again, a lot about the Spirit, and this morning, I want us to see afresh what the work of the Spirit looks like in action, in history, seeing how the Spirit is explicitly producing fruit and giving gifts, even at the very beginning of the New Testament church. So we'll go very somewhat quickly through Acts chapter 2. It's on page 771. If you're using the Pew Bible, there's a sermon outline there as well. But I want us to, to sort of see the sweep of the chapter, that we would see what the Spirit does and consider afresh what His work would look like, could look like, in your life, in our church, in our community, and in our world. So we'll read through uh, parts of Acts 2 as we go along, but let's pray as we, as we begin and open God's Word together. Father, we are thankful for the opportunity this morning to have your word and to see what you have done in history, to read a historical account of amazing things, and to know that you are at work in that way today, around the globe, through your spirit, multiplying your work in the lives of your people. We ask you would give us wisdom now and strength as we consider these things and as we apply them to our lives and hearts. We need your help, and so we ask that you would provide it for us as we open your word together. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. What good is a machine without power? The greatest technology, the greatest inventions, the greatest things that human minds can come up with can be useless 
if they don't have a power source. Think of a computer, cutting edge, you know, computer that isn't plugged in. What does it do? Nothing. It's paperweight. Think of a Ferrari with no gas. What does it do? Nothing. It gets towed. Think of all of the things that humans have come up with and think of what they are like without a power source. Think of what happens every time we have a storm and our homes lose power. We sort of wander around because we don't quite know what to do with all of these devices that don't work and we don't remember that they don't work and we you know, press the remote and nothing happens. Our homes and our lives are oriented around this constant use of electricity, about the fact that we're plugged into a power source, and that we always have it, that we count on it. It's always there, and so it's shocking when it doesn't work. <clears throat> I spent a couple weeks in Albania in the summer of 2000. We were up in the mountains. We were showing the Jesus film as a very rural area. Think like fleas and outhouses and... The other interesting dynamic there was that the power turned off and on throughout the course of the day, mostly off, but then there were times when it, it was on. And so it was, it was very strange. There was, this, there was this day we were staying at this family's house, and the television was on, which is strange because you're in rural Albania in the mountains, but of course they had satellite TVs, and they had, in one family's house, they were flipping through the channels, they came to Trinity Broadcasting Network in English, in Albania, right? Weird. Of all channels, of all places, of all languages, here we are. Uh, but we were, this one day, we were, we were just kind of sitting there, it was in the morning, and the father of the house said something, and then they translated for us. He said, uh, you know, as we're watching TV, he's like, uh, don't worry, that'll go off in a minute, and, you know, sure enough, it did. <laughs> And so we're just sitting there looking at this box. Um, but it was predictable for them, even, that electricity stopped working different times of the day, and they, you know, changed the routines of their life as, as part of living in a place like that. For us, of course, here, it's very strange when we lose power. But as we think about what it is to, for things to work, as we think about what it is for things to have power... I think it's, it's a simple analogy, but it's very true. The Holy Spirit is the power source of the Christian life. The way God has a trinity, the way God is a trinity, and the way God has arranged his work in the world, that's what he set up. He's given the Holy Spirit to live in the lives of his people, to be a supernatural power source that we would do more than we would otherwise do, that we would be more than we would otherwise be, that there is God living within us. And we see a great picture of this in Acts chapter 2, don't we? This is a climactic moment in the history of the world, really. It didn't happen out of the blue, though. Of course, as we set the context for these events, we have to focus for just a few minutes on Jesus' words and his talking about the coming of the Spirit. There are a number of of things I've listed there in the outline. We won't have time to fully explore them, but they're listed for your reference, and we can kind of touch on them quickly uh, as, as uh, the Holy Spirit comes. First, Jesus promised right before his ascension that the Holy Spirit would soon arrive. And, and in a way that's different 
from the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, there are lots of references to the Spirit. The Spirit rests upon people. But we get the sense that Jesus is talking about something richer, something fuller, something more complete and comprehensive than ever before. The Spirit seems to sort of come and go in the Old Testament, to come upon someone, to give them uh, the strength to do something or to prophesy or something else. But Jesus is promising something more permanent. Jesus tells his disciples in Acts 1, wait for the Spirit to come to baptize them. And this kind of language isn't used in the Old Testament to describe the the work of the Spirit. Baptism is a one-time event, right, of identification, of inclusion, of, of filling. So we should anticipate that the coming of the Spirit would be glorious and powerful, as Jesus tells his disciples that this Uh, will happen. Secondly, Jesus told his disciples that it was to their benefit that he would leave physically so that the Holy Spirit would come to them. In John 16, 7, Jesus said, but I tell you the truth, it is for your good, it is for your advantage that I'm going away. Unless I go away, the counselor, that's the Holy Spirit, the, the helper, will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And that must have been really hard for the disciples to understand, right? That they would lose Jesus' physical presence with them after they followed him for three years. And yet, Jesus says, it's better for you. It's to your advantage that I go away, that the Spirit would come. Jesus promised his disciples that the Spirit would teach them and that that the Spirit would remind them in connection with all that Jesus had taught during his earthly and public ministry. John 14, 25, and 26. All this I've spoken while still with you. But the Counselor, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I've said to you. Think about that for a minute. Jesus says that the Spirit will teach you all things and remind you of everything that I've said to you. And of course, we, rel- we trust that that's true as we read the accounts of what the disciples remembered and what Jesus uh, taught them. Finally, Jesus promised his disciples that the Spirit would testify, that the Spirit would bear witness about him. Again, in John 15, when the counselor comes, whom I will send you to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who goes out from the Father, he will testify about me. And you also must testify for you have been with me from the beginning. So the Spirit will testify about Jesus, and then in turn, the disciples, in the power of the Spirit, will also be witnesses, will also be testifying and pointing to Jesus. So, in summary, as we set up for Acts 2 here, we see that Jesus is preparing his disciples for something remarkable. He's telling them that they won't be alone without him, they won't be orphans. He's not leaving them without help. Rather, he's going to be with them, and even in a greater way, through the Spirit, to do more than they could imagine. That he'll be with them through the Spirit to lead them and direct them. That he'll be with them through the Spirit that they would be witnesses to the world of all that they've seen and heard about Jesus. So the sending of the Holy Spirit, of course, was was a vital part of Jesus establishing his church. An, An indispensable thing that had to happen for the church to be established. Because the Spirit is the the power source. And as we look through Acts chapter 2, there's a lot of ways that we see the Spirit's power. I've highlighted just three of them, but we'll go through them as we 
as we look through the passage together. First is this supernatural power to witness. As we've seen, one of the major roles of the Spirit, and in line particularly with the prophetic gifts, teaching, encouragement, prophecy, all of those, is to witness, is to communicate with using actual words about Jesus. In Acts uh, 2, let's read starting in verse 1. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place, and suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now there were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment, because each one heard them speaking in his own language. Utterly amazed, they asked, are not all these men who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears them in his own native language? In many places in the Old Testament, we find this a similar dynamic where the Holy Spirit comes upon people, rests upon people, and gives them this ability to prophecy, to, to, uh, make, to prophesy, to make prophecies for the king or for the people of Israel. But in this amazing event, the Spirit gives the disciples the ability to speak prophetically in other languages that they hadn't previously known. And these are real native languages that the people from these neighboring countries spoke. Mostly these are Jewish people who are gathered for the, for the Pentecost, but from all of these different places, from Europe to Arabia, from Egypt to Persia. There's this dispersion of people coming back and hearing, and, and, and hearing these words in their language, amazed, perplexed by this phenomenon. And so a large crowd, of course, gathers around the disciples. We don't know exactly where they were. Perhaps they had moved uh, to somewhere near the temple where such a huge crowd could be gathered because it says that there were uh, at least 3,000 who believed that day. So what would this crowd have been? I mean, thousands of people would have been there hearing this event. It's interesting to think about what that would have been like, isn't it? It's important to note that this is a different kind of speaking in tongues that we see elsewhere in the New Testament, particularly in the Corinthian church, that was a gift that required an interpreter. These, again, are are real languages, common languages, that the disciples are given the supernatural ability to speak. Uh, Henri Ivernaut was one of the first professors, maybe the first professor of the brand new Catholic University of America when it was founded in the 1880s. He was a French priest. Uh, He taught there at the school for so many years that they called him the grand old man of the university. He was a scholar of Semitic and other ancient languages, including Coptic and uh, Egyptian and others. He traveled throughout the Middle East, and part of the, the beginning of the library there was his books, that he had brought from his travels everywhere else and and brought them to establish a library. It was said about him that he learned one particular Semitic language in a week. I don't know quite if that's true or not. Perhaps it's the legend. But there was no doubt that he had an amazing gift with languages. Similarly, one of my professors was speaking about all of the traditions of missionaries and saints in the histories of the church, who were given some kind of similar sort of supernatural ability to witness 
uh, to learn languages and then thus to witness about God in languages that they could either learn very quickly or sort of learn by some kind of miracle or something they... And, you know, I don't know if these are true or not. Some of the stories are probably legendary, but it's certainly not something that we would eliminate from the realm of possibility, right? Because God's fame and God's name should be spread throughout the whole world by human witnesses and... The Spirit explicitly gives gifts to that end. And so it would make sense in the history of the church that God would equip people in amazing ways to communicate the truth about Him to those who otherwise wouldn't be able to hear the gospel. Sometimes in the Bible, the point of of a miracle or something is is the sign. For instance, Jesus shows himself powerful over demons by casting them out. Jesus shows his power over the storm by calming it. Jesus shows his power over death by raising the widow's son. The sign makes the point. But in this case, it's, it's different. There's a contrast here. The point isn't um, the sign. The disciples aren't speaking in tongues just for some kind of wow factor, right? The point is the message that all of these people from all of these various places are saying what they say in verse 11. We hear them declaring the wonders, the mighty deeds of God in our own tongues. The point is the message. The disciples are witnessing about God. And so any kind of prophecy, any kind of ecstatic speech, any kind of speaking in another language is not believed on the basis of the sign itself. The Bible makes it clear that the message is the point. John tells the church to test the spirits to see which ones come from God. And he says, every spirit which confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. That's 1 John 4.2. The corollary is also true. Paul teaches in 1 Corinthians 12.3, no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. No one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. It's the work of the Spirit to supernaturally give God's people the ability to witness to the truth about Jesus. And particularly also on this day of Pentecost, the message is that the central miracle, that the greatest wonder, that the climactic mighty work of God is the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And as the chapter continues, we see that that's the theme of Peter's speech, the resurrection prophesied in the Old Testament, witnessed by these apostles and so many others who were there in Jerusalem on that day. So as we think about the supernatural power to witness that the Spirit gives, we have to ask the question, what about for us today? How do we, how do we do it? Believing that this, uh, you know, what does it look like for us to tap into the supernatural power to witness to those around us? Do we believe that the Spirit will give us opportunities to say the true and redemptive thing, or even just a glimpse of the truth, or even just to plant a seed. I think it's right for us to ask the Spirit that we would do it sensitively and authentically because it does create barriers. It creates barriers within ourselves. It creates barriers within others when we want to talk to them about Jesus. It's, it's difficult. I was reminded of this um, even this week. Um, other places where I've lived Uh, people seem at least politely interested when I tell them that I'm a pastor. 
you know, often they'll mention their own sort of, even if they're non-Christian beliefs, they'll be like, oh, yeah, I think, you know, religion is generally important. You know, yeah, I grew up in the church. You know, there's some point of contact. And here, it's, it often feels like a conversation killer. I could tell someone I'm a pastor, and they're like, oh. And, you know, people don't know what to say. And they don't seem interested in learning more. They don't have a point of connection. They don't seem to, dis- to discuss anything to do with Christianity. And I was, I was thinking about that. And then I, according to the 2010 census, 62% of people in Anne Arundel County say that they have no religious affiliation. Now, that's three times the national average. The national American average is about 20% of people say they have no religion. In Anne Arundel County, according to the 2010 census, 62% of people. In the, 20, in the 2000 census, 10 years before, it was 50%. So up 12% in 10 years. And it kind of hit me when I saw those statistics. This is a challenging context to speak anything about faith. But how much more in this context... Might we be amazed by how the Spirit will make us witnesses? Do we believe that we have a message for our community and for our neighbors? Even if people around us are generally hostile to the message, or or at least ambivalent. There are about 4,000 PCA folks in this county of over half a million people. What would it look like for the Lord to use us to plant seeds of faith in small ways? to engage people with the gospel, with love, with kindness, with mercy? I don't know. I want us to think about it. I mean, it's part of even our strategic plan as we've been talking about worship, as we've been talking about discipleship. What does it look like for us, given the context that we're in, to engage our community with the gospel? Do we believe that the Spirit gives us that power to witness to those around us about the truth of Jesus? Second, we see in what the Spirit is doing here in Acts chapter 2, that the Spirit gives the supernatural power to save, to bring the gift of salvation to people, that witnessing leads to conversion, and that both of these things come supernaturally from the Spirit. As we continue in the chapter, we see this. Peter begins his speech. He quotes from the prophet Joel, verse um, 14, describes his speech. He begins to uh, talk and address the crowd, verse 16. This is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see, will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days, and they will prophesy. I will show wonders in the heaven above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood. Before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. A couple things to notice. Peter says we're in the last days. This is the last great event of redemptive history until Christ comes back. This is the big one. Biblically speaking, the last days began then. And these last days have continued to our day. It's interesting that this pouring out of the Spirit that Jesus said would happen 
is this great, right, last event, this last preparation event before Jesus returns. And Joel's prophecy tells us that this outpouring of the Spirit leads to prophecy, it leads to dreams, it leads to visions, it leads to wonders and signs among the people. And the language, of course, is prophetic. It's not to be taken literally as though the substance of the moon were turning to blood. The point that Peter is making is that this outpouring of the Spirit leads to miraculous events among all people before the day of the Lord. And the last line is the clincher. As Peter is is quoting from Joel, the last line is, is what he has in mind, right? Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. The outpouring of the Spirit, the signs and the prophecies, it calls forth a response from those who see and hear. That they, would call on the, that they would call on the Lord. That they would be saved. That salvation is offered to people who will listen and believe. In the earthly ministry of Jesus, of course, he called many people to repent and believe and to follow him. But now, there's this new stage, right? Where multiplied out in these many languages, Peter and many witnesses are calling people to the same thing. To repent and believe in Jesus. To hear the message of the mighty works of God and to respond from the heart. And we know, of course, it's a work of the Spirit to open the heart and the eyes and the minds of people to respond to the truth about Jesus. The Spirit alone makes the words and the signs of witness spiritually effective. And that's exactly what we see in verse 36. As Peter ends his speech, he says... Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. And when the people heard this, they were cut to the heart, and they said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. Peter tells the people that they crucified the Messiah, and they were cut to the heart. They were convicted. Can you imagine that just for a minute for that audience? A few weeks ago, you guys crucified the Messiah. I mean, that's like, until they saw the picture of it, right, the worst news that they could have ever received, that could have ever happened among God's people, right? God did the thing that he said he would do to save us, and we killed the Messiah. I mean, put yourself in your shoes. Imagine the horror of that moment. And I think we get the sense of that here. Brothers, what shall we do? I mean, what what did we do? We crucified the Messiah. And Peter says, repent. But it was God's plan And you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And the Spirit will give you this supernatural power to be saved. That your sins would be forgiven. That God's plan was the Messiah would die so that the people could be saved. Take a hold of that. And of course it's the Spirit that gives the people the ability to do that. Lastly, as we see the work of the Spirit in this chapter, we see that the Spirit gives the supernatural power to unite people together. In this brand new church. Conversion, witnessing leads to conversion. Conversion leads to unity. And one of the most amazing things about this Pentecost event to me is that the way that this picture, the the way that this event 
is a picture of the reversal of the Tower of Babel. Of course, we remember the events of Genesis 11. Humanity, united in language and culture, rebelled together against God and said, we're going to make a name for ourselves. We are going to make a a tower. We're going to be independent from God. And God's judgment on that universal human pride was the confusion of their languages and that he would scatter them, that he would divide them out among the earth. And of course, these divides of language and culture are very profound and deep, aren't they? What a great, what an effective curse it was. Anyone who's ever tried to learn another language knows that it's really hard to really understand, to really get it, to see how much language connects with the way our brains are wired and how deep those cultural things go. But Pentecost is a picture of a new kind of unity, not unity in rebellion against God, Unity in Christ. Unity in worship. Unity of people who are different from one another. United. With common purpose. Again, as because of his mercy, God is drawing people back to himself from every single one of these cultures and languages, as the book of Revelation tells us. And again, it's the work of the Spirit that creates this kind of unity. Verse 42 They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe, and many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. All the believers were together. They had everything in common, selling their possessions and goods they gave to anyone as he had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. These were still mostly Jewish people at this point, but still very divided, naturally, by language and culture and history and status and wealth and all the other ways that people are divided from one another. But the Spirit creates a new kind of unity. And I never really considered it before, but as we read about what the church is doing, we see the Spirit giving diverse gifts to this body spiritual gifts, that the body would be built up and grow. There were teachers and there were prayers. There were those who give, who had the gift of generosity. There were those who were hosts, who had the gift of hospitality. There were those who were serving. There were those who were prophesying, right? So from the very beginning of the church, in the activities of this body, we see spiritual gifts on display for the good of the whole group. Isn't that interesting? I'd never really considered that before until, until now, but it's, but it's there. Of course, as the church develops, we see more, you know, chapter 6, we see the deacons, we see administration, we see more of the organization and wisdom and leadership gifts being given, but from the very beginning of the church, the Spirit equips the church with a diversity of gifts that people would be exercising for the good of the whole body. The Spirit unites those who repent and believe. And yet, this uniting is in the context of diversity. Gloriously different parts working together in unity. And uh, I was thinking about this. We saw it firsthand. We experienced it when we were in Atlantic City a few weeks ago on our mission trip. One of the speakers uh, who spoke to us during the course of the week 
works with the church there. And he spoke about how Christ broke down the dividing wall between people, right? And so he talked about this from, it's familiar to us probably from Ephesians 2 and 3, about how there was, Paul, Paul tells us there was this great divide. There was the great divide of Jew and Gentile. The Jews were in, the Gentiles were out. The Gentiles were excluded. They were without hope. They were without God in the world. But Paul tells the Ephesians that now they have been brought in through Christ. And so, biblically speaking, that was the only divide. Jew, Gentile. God's people, not God's people. Chosen ones, not chosen ones. Right? Biblically speaking, before Christ came, that was the only divide. And it wasn't just an ethnic divide, of course. We see many examples of Gentiles coming in to the worship of Israel. God was not just a tribal God. We see examples of Israelites who weren't really Israel. But the divide was, right, Israel, not Israel, in the biggest kind of sense of the word. And now the divide is church, capital C, and not church. And so the divide isn't, we we tend, I think, to think, this was the speaker's point, we tend to think in terms of divides between Christians, Catholic, Protestant, Presbyterian, Baptist, black, white, formal, free-flowing, traditional, contemporary. You know, we think of all of these different ways that we label churches, and, we, and people talk about, we need to break down the wall between our different kinds of churches, right? And the speaker's point was saying, wait a minute, the wall has been broken down. Jesus broke down the wall, all of the walls, between Christians. The only divide, biblically speaking, is church, not church. Belief, unbelief. And this is the picture that we get here of a church united and understanding what it means, what the Spirit does to bring 3,000 people together in one day and God continuing to add to their number. The divides of culture and style and preference have been overcome in Christ. Now we hold, of course, to our doctrine. Many of the things that separate Christians are doctrinal and, and those are maybe... Uh, important reasons not to be, um, you know, on the same page in some particular issues and areas. But the bigger point, I think, is this idea that the Spirit is working to unite the church, and that the Holy Spirit's power is vital for the church to practice the kind of unity that Jesus purchased on the cross. Of course, unity is strained by our differences, but the Spirit moves to unite and hold together the church. And the Spirit has sustained the church from that day until this, despite its many flaws and weaknesses. And the Spirit will sustain us until Jesus returns. Kind of as we wrap up here, as we think about what all this means, I hope this has been, my my goal was to present a fresh vision for the work of the Spirit. Pentecost is a unique day in the life of the church and the history of the world. But in another sense, it's an ordinary day in the life of the Spirit. And I mean by that, this is a picture of what the Spirit does. The Holy Spirit creates powerful witnesses to Jesus. The Holy Spirit supernaturally saves people. The Holy Spirit gives power to unify the church and to build it up. We see the fruit of the Spirit on display. We see the gifts of the Spirit on display. What about for us? 
in this challenging culture, to whom could you be a witness? What would it look like for us to trust the Spirit to guide our words and to give us boldness and wisdom to ask the question or to make the statement that might open up the heart of someone? Do we trust the Spirit will save those around us, perhaps even using us in our words or our actions? It's not easy to imagine sometimes, but many of us can point to the, the same thing. They can point to, we can point to something little that someone said, that someone did, that changed our course and started us on the journey to faith in Christ. Finally, the question here is how can we pursue unity in the Spirit? It connects to the discovery and the use of our spiritual gifts. As we've seen the Spirit as, as gifted us, as we see how the Spirit has gifted us, we're freed to serve with joy. And we're, to, and we're encouraged because we see that the body needs our gifts and our gifts are a benefit to the body. And it draws us together and it builds us up. The great news, of course, is that it's not really ultimately up to us, is it? We can't do anything without power. And so my encouragement for us this morning is to ask for power. To ask that the Spirit would do more of what He does in us. That He would give us power to witness. That He would give us power that's to see that some would be saved. That He would give us power to exercise our gifts and to uh, bring unity in our church, that the whole church will be built up. The same things that we would be praying for Brad and Aubrey and their family as they go far away and, and are connected and united and filled with the Spirit to do a work there that's needed, those are the things that, that God has prepared for us as well. Um, let's, let's ask Him, indeed, to, to work and look, at, look for opportunities for Him to do so. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, this morning we are thankful again for this reminder of what you do and how your spirit is at work uh, within your people. God, we do need your help. We have no strength without the strength that you provide. Help us to believe that. And help us to trust that you are the one who does provide the strength. That you are the one who gives us the ability to... Uh, to witness, who gives us the ability to use our gifts, who gives us our gifts that we would use them, who guides and directs our paths providentially, that we would encounter those who are, are in need, and that we would be able to point them to you. God, we thank you that we are better off. It's to our advantage, Jesus, that you went away, that the Spirit would come. Holy Spirit, we do ask you would do amazing things in our hearts, more than we could ask or imagine. Help us to be open-handed about our gifts, uh, seeing the way, uh, letting you do what you will. Guide and direct us as a church and as believers. Uh, help these words to, to be a reminder to us as we head into our week. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.